Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Ido Vok in Berlin. I'm Megan Gibson in London. It's Friday the 8th of October. Welcome to World Review from the Statesman. Thank you for joining us. All right, uh, very excitingly, we have a new co-host. Megan Gibson is Senior Editor International at the New Statesman as of uh, a few weeks ago. And she is filling in for Emily and regular listeners will, of course, know that she discussed Canadian politics with us a few weeks ago. And now she's back as a host. So it's very exciting to have her on. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, Big shoes to fill, but I'm very happy to be here. I'm sure you'll do a splendid job. (laughs) And you can start off by proving what a splendid job you'll do by talking about the moment of the week that you think will go down in history. Of course. I think this is a series of moments with China really ratcheting up uh, tensions with Taiwan. Over the course of the past week, China sent a record number of military jets into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. And this obviously is alarming, not just the Taiwanese, but everyone in the region. Joe Biden has got involved and everyone's really kind of looking to see what this means and if you know, China's really going to pursue its its military aggression and the threats it's kind of been instigating. It seems to be really hitting a fever pitch at the moment. Now, Joe Biden has said that he spoke this week with Xi Jinping and that the Chinese president had promised he would abide by the Taiwan agreement. Now, that was Joe Biden's quote. There is no formal Taiwan agreement. So everyone kind of assuming that what he means is the one China policy and that Xi Jinping won't really try and actually effectively start a full-scale conflict with Taiwan. But lots of people in Taiwan obviously are not particularly reassured by that at the moment. My moment of the week is local elections that there were in Italy, which saw some pretty bad results for Italy's populist parties, uh, the Five Star Movement and Matteo Salvini's league. And so, for example, uh, in Rome, which had had a five-star mayor, uh, Virginia Raggi, who won in 2016 with 35% of the vote, she almost halved her share of the vote to 19%. And so she's not going to be in the runoff round. Similar story in, for example, Milan, where the league 
which scored 27% at European elections in 2019, just got only 11%. And the Five Star Movement in Turin uh, went from 30% to 9%. So a real kind of defeat for populist parties, which um, formed a coalition government after national elections and had inspired populist anti-establishment movements all over the world. So um, an interesting political development there. Definitely. And with that, we're delighted to be joined today by Kenji Hall. Kenji is an American journalist living in Tokyo who wrote a very good piece for The New Statesman on Japan's new prime minister, Fumio Kishida. And so we're delighted to have him on to talk about Japan and Japanese politics and Japan's new PM. So thanks very much for coming on today, Kenji. To start with, so obviously we've got this new prime minister who came into the office this week, Fumio Kishida. And he came to office because he won the leadership of the Liberal Democratic Party, Japan's ruling party, which has ruled Japan almost without interruption for going on 70 years. Can you just talk about who Kishida is? How did he rise to prominence? What's his What's his background? What are his beliefs? And why did he outmaneuver his rivals to win the leadership? Yeah, that's a really good question. So uh, Fumio Kishida is a third-generation politician. He was first elected to his father's seat in the lower house of parliament. This is the Diet in 1993. In terms of his political views, he's known mainly as a moderate a liberal politician. He's from Hiroshima, which is, as you know, one of only two cities in the world to be hit by a nuclear bomb. And so he has a strong anti-war, anti-militarism record. He was foreign minister from December 2012 to August 2017, making him the second longest serving foreign minister since the Second World War. And then since 2017, he's been the ruling LDP's policy chief. This is a very powerful post, which involves coordinating policy between the government and the ruling party. He's known as a technocrat and a consensus builder. When he talks about issues, he talks uh, about substantive things, but he's not the most dynamic or charismatic speaker. He doesn't draw huge crowds of excited fans the way former Prime Minister Junichiro Koizumi did back in the early 2000s, but he does come across as as earnest. And I've seen his colleagues in the LDP mainly saying that he's uh, very much a straight talker. He's made uh, a lot of effort, a lot more effort, I'd say, than his predecessors to engage the public in policy discussions. You know, leading up to his candidacy uh, for the party's presidency, he really made an effort to reach out to voters by uh, creating a hashtag, Kishida Box, on Twitter for people to send in questions that uh, he would answer directly either on Twitter or in a YouTube live session. He also joined a junior legislator in his party on an Instagram live session to talk about how he hopes to help people with disabilities. You know, at at one point uh, last year, Kishida was thought to be a a has-been, really. He lost out uh, the party presidency to Yoshihira Suga, who, as I mentioned, was Shinzo Abe's handpicked successor. And some people are actually saying that, you know, he had missed his one chance at being prime minister. So this is his second run at the party leadership. Just on um, on Yoshihide Suga, he was, as you mentioned, Abe's handpicked successor 
obviously Abe dominated Japanese politics for I think about 15 years before he resigned because of health issues. But Suga was only in power for just over a year. Why didn't he turn out to be this kind of political heavyweight on, on the level of, of Abe, given that he was Abe's designated successor? Mainly, I would point to two things. One is the government's decision to host the Tokyo Olympics amid the pandemic. And the second would be the government's bungled response, really, to the pandemic. There have been a series of state of emergencies. The government has had to ask the public numerous times, and businesses as well, to refrain from going out, to curtail their businesses. And this has really, really uh, hit at, uh, at the heart of voters' dissatisfaction with Suga's administration. You know, at, at one point, towards the end of Suga's prime ministership, his approval ratings were down in the 20s. We haven't seen a prime minister with approval ratings that low for some time. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the kind of internal factional jostling that there was that allowed Kishida to rise to power. Sure, absolutely. So Kishida leads a major LDP faction. Uh, In fact, it's the party's most liberal faction. This liberal faction within the LDP, which is essentially a conservative party, hasn't produced a prime minister in almost three decades, which really shows how much the conservative and hawkish side of the party has dominated in recent years. One political analyst put it this way, that Kishida is the moderate face of a party dominated by its right wing. And to get there, he essentially had to win over influential conservatives in his party. And he seems to have done that by turning hawkish on security issues and taking more conservative uh, views on gender equality and and other issues. I wanted to ask Kenji, so since you've written your piece, Kishida has now chosen his cabinet. And interestingly, a few of the prominent party members seem to have been sidelined. I wonder how this signals his intentions in the upcoming campaign. Kishida had hoped to present himself to his country with a cabinet that was sort of the fresh side of the LDP. There are 20 posts of the 20, 13 were filled by people with no prior cabinet experience. So this was basically in line with Kishida's pledge to bring in new faces and to spread opportunities around to um, other factions in the party. But the impression that a lot of people got after seeing his picks was that the political wheeling and dealing determine most of the important jobs. There are three women in his cabinet. They lead very lightweight portfolios. One is in charge of vaccinations, one is in charge of uh, digitalization, and one is in charge of gender equality and declining birth rate related issues. But the most important jobs, trade and industry, finance, defense, foreign affairs, these all went to allies of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and ex-finance minister Taro Aso. If you look at the finance minister, Shinichi Suzuki, he's Taro Aso's brother-in-law. The defense minister, Nobuo Kishi, is Abe's brother. And the foreign minister, Toshimitsu Motegi, is actually a holdover from the previous administrations, from Abe's administration, as well as Abe's hand-picked successor's administration, Yoshihide Suga. So Kishida's picks 
reflect this kind of internal power dynamic. He essentially won the LDP's presidency with the support of Shinzo Abe and Taro Aso. And what we're seeing is that he's returned the favor by picking their allies for these most important cabinet posts. Since he became prime minister, the upcoming election has now been set for the 31st of October, which is much sooner than most people were expecting. Does this suggest that Kishida thinks he has some momentum that he can capitalize on? Or does this point to something else? I think the main consideration here is not necessarily his momentum, but it is the fact that he wants to put together before the end of the year an economic aid package amounting to the trillions of yen. This supposedly will help families in need. This will help small businesses and medium-sized businesses that have suffered through the pandemic. And in order to do that, in order to have the proper time for uh, policy debates, he will need to hold this election as soon as possible. I just wanted to um, follow up on his economic policies and just ask what different path does he kind of support from, you know, the traditional Abe economics that we've seen over the past years in Japan? So I think when you look at Kishida's overall policies, a lot of his general policies are in line with what we've seen under Prime Ministers Shinzo Abe and Yoshihide Suga. He wants closer ties with the U.S., he wants lower trade barriers, and he wants to figure out a way to counter China's growing assertiveness. And yet we've also seen this uh, shift under Kishida. He, he doesn't talk about uh, growth being the main thing in his policies. He wants to focus on what he says is a new type of capitalism, neo-capitalism. He wants to revive the economy, and yet he also favors redistributing wealth. He's talked about this in recent months. He wrote about it in his book released last year called Kishida Vision, From Division to Cooperation. A lot of what he has found in going around the country and listening to families and farmers and small businesses is that people really would like to see him tackle the income disparities that have grown in Japan. He's talked about raising salaries for nurses, for daycare workers, for elderly care workers. And he's hoping that he can put pressure on the private sector to do a similar thing with private sector salaries. He's talked about expanding government support for education, for housing. And so this aid package that's worth tens of trillions of yen, which would essentially amount to hundreds of billions of US dollars, is essentially to help uh, a lot of the people who have struggled through the pandemic. Let's talk about foreign policy. When Kishida won the leadership of the LDP, he gave a speech in which he talked about the foreign policy that he wanted to put forward. In terms of foreign and security policy, I want to put forth three commitments. Protecting the basic values of democracy, maintaining the stability and peace of our country, and contributing to solving problems on a global scale beginning with environment-related problems, but will raise our profile at the international level and protect our national interests. By creating a foreign and security policy based on these three commitments, we can build a free and open Indo-Pacific region. And in that speech, Kishida spoke about 
wanting to maintain a, an open and free Indo-Pacific and protecting democracy and peace and stability. How can we expect Japan's foreign policy to evolve under Kishida? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I think when you look at who Kishida spoke with first among heads of state uh, after he took office, he had calls with US President Joe Biden and Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison. These are obviously members of the Quad group of nations, which also includes India, and is essentially a targeted effort to counter China. You know, in his call with Prime Minister Morrison, Kishida expressed his support for also the security partnership between Australia, Britain, and the US. He's, as you mentioned, talked about the importance of a free and open Indo-Pacific. And he's talked about these universal values of democracy and the rule of law. This is directly from the script of his predecessors, Shinzo Abe and Yoshihide Suga. So on that, in that sense, um, he doesn't really present a huge difference. This is foreign policy continuing the way it has been for years now. The question with Kishida is that, you know, with China as Japan's biggest trading partner, Kishida has long held a, a moderate view that aims at balancing relations with China. He's also talked about wanting to continue this dialogue with Beijing. But given the U.S.'s more hardline policy toward Beijing, it, it seems that it would be really very difficult for Kishida to, 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 uh, to adopt a moderate stance um, he's more likely to adopt a, a more hawkish stance. Um, and, and I think this also relates to how China has dealt with, uh, I'm sorry, this also relates to how Japan has dealt with China's uh, sort of aggressive diplomatic and military posturing, uh, especially on territorial issues um, that challenge Tokyo's control of the Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea. We've seen a number of incursions by Chinese Coast Guard vessels into Japanese territorial waters around the Senkaku Islands, um, Japan has fretted over the fact that it has less than half the number of Coast Guard vessels um, that China has, uh, and you know that the Japan's Coast Guard vessels are the first sort of policing line of defense uh, in Japan's maritime strategy. So uh, there is a sense that Tokyo does need to step up its uh, military capabilities. We've seen that done under the term deterrence. Uh, we've seen uh, Japan converting over uh, helicopter carriers to full-blown aircraft carriers. Um, even though Japan, under Japan's pacifist constitution, technically, um, Japan is not supposed to have uh, military capabilities that would allow it to be the aggressor. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. And that's a very good note on which to move on to a section that we like to call. You ask us. Very good. You're a natural, Megan. Um, (laughs) Our question this week is from Andrew and it is, under Shinzo Abe, a lot of noise was made about changing the constitution. But since his departure, things have been a lot quieter. What should we expect on that front from the new Japanese prime minister? And I suppose this is especially uh, a reference to Japan's uh, pacifist constitution, which mostly forbids the use of force abroad and so on. Kenji, do you want to take a stab at that? Absolutely. Just the idea of revising the country's pacifist constitution, it's still very much on the party's policy agenda. Kishida has said in the past, he said recently, that he supports a constitutional revision. Um, Just to give it a little context here, Japan's constitution has never been revised. It it went into effect in 1947. It was drafted by the U.S. after World War II. Conservatives in the LDP see the Constitution as a reminder of that humiliating defeat. Uh, And they think of it as something that was forcibly imposed on Japan. So they also think of it as something that hampers Japan's ability to play a bigger role on the global stage. Obviously, Japan still relies heavily on U.S. forces. The U.S. has more than 50,000 troops in Japan, you know, under a U.S.-Japan security treaty that's been in effect since 1960. You know, there, there are many layers to this. It's entirely possible that Kishida actually supports the revision, and he's done it in order to win over the conservative wing of his party. There's another side that suggests that he's doing this mainly for political purposes, but he doesn't actually think the idea has enough public support to pass. And when we look at recent opinion polls, it shows that the Japanese public remains very divided over revising uh, what's known as Article 9. Now, revising the Constitution would require approval by two-thirds in both Uh, chambers of parliament, and then a majority in a national referendum vote. The LDP doesn't have that kind of supermajority. And and that's why the issue has been shelved recently. Um, Basically, the LDP is in favor of kind of a four-point proposal that would uh, revise the constitution. The most controversial of those four points uh, relates to the self-defense forces. This is Japan's military. the SDF is not mentioned in the constitution. Um, even within the LDP, there's a split over whether the SDF should be added to the constitution, um, and specifically into what's known as Article 9. Article 9 is, is what really commits Japan to pacifism. It's the part that renounces war, 
uh, it prohibits Japan from having the ability to wage an offensive war. And essentially, it's, it's meant to assure Japan's neighbors in Asia that Japan won't repeat the atrocities of the early 20th century. But because the SDF is not mentioned in the constitution, some constitutional scholars say that the SDF itself is unconstitutional. Now, Japan gets around this by saying, well, the constitution doesn't say that Japan shouldn't have a way of defending itself against external threats. Uh, And this is the SDF's role. And generally, the the public uh, buys into that view. Um, Also, the fact that other countries' militaries work closely with the SDF shows that Japan's SDF is well recognized by uh, other countries as Japan's military. Um, you know, does does that mean Japan should formally recognize the role of the SDF? And if so, does that then give the SDF license to act like a military as defined by other countries? Or does Japan not really need to change anything? So those, those are sort of the questions around this debate that are extremely hard to resolve. Great. Okay. So thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. Listeners, you can send in yours at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at Jeremy, Emily, or Edo. And as always, we're going to, for our final segment, take a look at events in world politics in the week to come. Kenji, what in world politics will you be looking at? I am going to focus very narrowly on Japan and on the lower house of parliament. This is the 465 member, uh, more influential side of Japan's parliament. Uh, It will be dissolved uh, next week, next Thursday, October 14th. And that will uh, launch the official campaigning for the election, which will be held on October 31st. So uh, I think that's where my focus will be. And Megan, what will you be looking forward to? Uh, Well, in Emily's absence, I thought I would pick something from the US. I'll be looking at the US Supreme Court, which on Wednesday, the 13th of October, is going to be hearing arguments on whether they should reinstate the death penalty for Boston Marathon bomber Yohart Sarnaev. And this is quite interesting because the Joe Biden administration, his Department of Justice, is the one pursuing reinstating this. But Joe Biden is the first sitting U.S. president to be openly opposed to the death penalty. So I think there's just some really interesting possibilities of what's going to happen with this case that can give us some indication of where the death penalty in the U.S. could be going. That's a a really interesting one. Um, I'll be looking at the French Socialist Party, which is going to select its candidate for next year's presidential elections, which are in exactly 199 days today. It's a it's a formality. Anne Hidalgo is almost certainly going to win. So the mayor of Paris, who I've profiled before for the New Statesman, but it comes in the context of a pretty heated election campaign, which regular listeners to the podcast will know seemed for a, a while to be quite settled as heated up um, with Eric Zemmour, who is now in some polls polling second. So that indicates that he would make it to the second round. He's really shaken things up. And uh, by contrast, Hidalgo is still languishing behind on five or six percent of the vote uh, in in various polls. So how the socialists select their candidate, whether the left can, through one of its many factions, uh, attempt to begin to make an impact um, on the national debate will be something that I'll be watching. 
That's really interesting. As a reminder, you can listen to the latest episode of our special podcast series, Germany Elects. This week, Jeremy, in collaboration with the Frederick Ebert Foundation, interviewed Martin Schulz, who was the SDP's chancellor candidate in uh, 2017, about the role that the SDP could play in a traffic-like coalition with the Green Party and the Liberals in Germany. So um, if you're interested in, in German politics, then do give that a listen. With that, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe, leave a review and tell a friend, preferably all at once. And sign up for free for the World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash worldreview. Our producer has been May Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. 